Well, good morning. Let me ask for a show of hands. Who has heard some version of this story before? Yeah, it's pretty. There are at least three versions in the Gospels of this story in, in Matthew, Mark, and John. So it comes up a lot in worship and, of course, in sermons. Now, when different Gospel writers share something in common, Bible scholars pay attention. For example, the miracle of the loaves and fish feeding the multitudes of hungry people is told six times in the Gospels, and seminary professors and Bible scholars in Central America, a place where hunger is all too common, helped me appreciate that this reflects God's concern for those who face hunger. As it happens, one phrase from today's text, you always have the poor among you, or as it reads in other translations, always have the poor with you, is rather famous. Or considering how some people have used Jesus's words to perpetuate greed and capitalism, you could say this passage is infamous. Many Bible scholars attribute repetition in the Gospels to importance or familiarity for the early church. It's particularly significant when John follows suit with the other Gospels because much of the time, John does things far differently in his Gospel. For John, Christ is a source of saving grace in the whole world. John's focus is much more macrocosmic. John doesn't focus much on the micro, on how groups like the poor experience grace. Yet there it is in John's gospel too, that nagging phrase, you will always have the poor among you. Just over 20 years ago, 20 years in a few days, I was called to ministry with Bread for the World, Bread is a Christian organization that seeks to end hunger in our time. Now, Bread started in the mid-1970s. Art Simon, a pastor doing ministry in New York City, noticed faith communities running themselves ragged, responding to hunger and hardship in several neighborhoods, yet sadly, still not getting the job done. There's an apocryphal story about charity that you all have probably heard before. It's the one where people downriver are heroically rescuing people who are caught in a fast-moving current coming downstream, and they're saving many, many lives, but missing others who unfortunately float on by. And they do it over and over until finally someone says, hey, let's go upstream and find out why people are falling in the river. If Bert were here, I'd ask him to do a Homer Simpson, no. Well, in the late 1970s, Art Simon went upstream asking, how is it that there was so much wealth and generosity in the world, too many people cannot keep their heads above water? Art recognized that the church's wonderful ministries of direct service were overmatched by the needs of people facing hunger and hardship. See, Art Simon's father used to tell him, I'd rather build a guardrail at the top of the cliff than drive an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And Art realized many of our church ministries are driving that ambulance, but we need to make time to build the guardrail at the top to address hunger and really accomplish something. We need to go upstream. That's one reason I was so insistent with our leadership team that the Mission Commission be renamed Justice and Service rather than Service and Justice. I was insistent to their great amusement. So let, let's lead with justice. It's aspirational, folks. So... Back to Bread's origin story. Art Simon gathered pastors and lay leaders and they began studying the Bible together. 
They came to see that God cares not only about the least of these, but also about our laws and our structures and how we relate to the least of these, how society relates and how we treat the least of these. God's laws about gleaning and debt cancellation held greater meaning amidst their new understanding. Warnings from the prophets about unjust laws that oppress people seemed more relevant than ever. The pastors realized that when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and when God called Moses and ultimately Aaron and sent them to Pharaoh, God sent them on a mission of political advocacy. Let my people go, set my people free. After a year of Bible study, a year, the pastors and lay leaders concluded, God is calling us to speak. Our world doesn't have a scarcity problem. By God's design, there always is and has been plenty. The world has a distribution problem. Let's invest the church in a Christian movement to address root causes of this imbalance. Let's create food systems that support the end of hunger and malnutrition. So Art and these leaders launched Bread for the World, which mobilized Christians to do what the Bible said, stand up for the least of these. Christians wrote to Congress calling on them to support the right to food resolution. This resolution said, and I'll quote, the United States reaffirms the right of every person in this country and throughout the world to food and a nutritionally adequate diet. Well, as you might guess, at first Congress ignored the resolution, but then thousands of letters started pouring in from all over the nation from Bread for the World members. In 1975, Congress passed the resolution overwhelmingly. As a result, putting Congress on record in support of the right to food led directly to many policy changes that lowered rates of hunger, both at home and around the globe. For example, it led to something called the Child Survival Account, which funds potable water and inoculation projects for children. It led to the WIC program, a federal nutrition program for women, infants, and children here in the US. Now it's just in the first couple of years. The poor have always been with us. It's interesting, you hear some religious leaders interpret these words from Jesus as a confirmation that poor people are just part of the scenery. It's just this, the way of human nature, you can't avoid it. Usually this understanding includes the notion that such people aren't trying hard enough. If only they would work as hard as we work. But you know, that interpretation feels just a little too convenient. It doesn't quite square with Jesus's clear call to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus never gives up on the lost, the least, the left out anywhere else in the gospels. Why would that change here? One also hears other religious leaders interpret Jesus's words to mean there's just no way to catch up with all the poverty and hunger in the world. It's just too big. But God doesn't call us to be quitters, giving up before we start. We know there's enough if we share. So what does Jesus mean by you always have the poor with you? Well, a closer look shows this phrase didn't originate in the Gospels. It shows up first in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the Old Testament book that takes the basic Jewish law, love God, love your neighbor, and drops it into the context of the promised land. First, after calling for the cancellation of debts, Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, counts God's blessings and says there will be more than enough to share in this new land God is giving the Israelites, 
quote, there won't be any poor persons among you. So at this point, we should be like doing, you know, high fives, like, yes, there will be no poverty among God's people. But unfortunately, the verse goes on. But only if you carefully obey the Lord, your God's voice by carefully, twice carefully, doing every bit of this commandment that I'm giving you right now. Oh, fiddlesticks, fiddlesticks. <laughs> we know that's not going to happen, right? Look at our track record of obeying God's voice and carefully doing every bit of God's commandments. So not good. In verse seven, the writer, knowing that we are sinners and live in a fallen world, adds, now, if there are some poor persons among you and gives directives to be generous. Then in verse 11, it's as if the writer acknowledges there will be a distribution problem. Verse 11 says, poor persons will never disappear from the earth. Other translations say, there are always going to be poor and needy people among you or with you. This is the passage Jesus is referencing. And look where Deuteronomy goes with this lesson. Deuteronomy mitigates for human nature, for our accumulation tendency. Every seven years, forgive each other's debts. And every 50 years, redistribute the land to its original owners. In short, re-level the playing field regularly. So everyone participates in God's abundance, especially the most vulnerable among you. When there are poor people among you, show compassion, open a food pantry, share from your storehouses, but don't stop there. This kind of public policy that makes sure abundance is shared, this is what love looks like in the land that God will give you. Keep in mind that Jesus, the good Jewish rabbi, and his audience are quite familiar with the words and lessons of Deuteronomy. Through the lens of Deuteronomy, or perhaps today we'd say the earbuds of Deuteronomy, you can almost hear the weariness in Jesus's voice. Let's go over this one more time. You will always have the poor among you. You know the rest of the text I'm quoting. You will always have the poor among you. Therefore, do not abandon the poor among you. Don't be self-satisfied with having enough for yourself. God's abundance demands thinking much bigger than that. Show the public form of love, God's justice. Address the root causes of poverty. Level the playing field. As you can see, we have tables set up on the outskirts of our chairs, and we have a chance today in worship to help level the playing field together by using our voices to, as Proverbs 31 reminds us, speak out for those who cannot speak, for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. In a few moments, we'll have the opportunity to write short emails or letters to elected leaders in Washington, D.C. about hunger. There's a wonderful bipartisan bill right now before Congress that can strengthen nutrition for children and families in the poorest parts of the world where hunger has spiked as a result of the pandemic. We spent years cultivating this evidence-based bill, and now it's finally here. With our voices, we can move Congress to take smart, sound action against hunger and malnutrition around the world. We also have the opportunity to remind Congress how beneficial the child tax credit is to low-income families here in California and the U.S. During the pandemic, hunger levels rose higher than during the Great Depression. But this year's improvements to the child tax credit, really expansions and improvements, are already drastically cutting child hunger here in California.
children from groups that are disproportionately high hunger rates are already benefiting the most. With this recent expansion of the child tax credit, poverty among black children is projected to be cut by an estimated 52%, among Latino children by 45%, among Native American children by 62%. Let's make those cuts to poverty and hunger permanent and narrow the racial wealth gap. It's a wonderful development, and regardless of how Congress votes this week on the Build Back Better bill, we want Congress to keep fighting child hunger. So in this season when COVID and, as I look around, masks are not yet gone, when we live with the uncertainty of next steps, we receive this reminder from the lips of Jesus, the poor are here too. So into the abyss of human suffering, let's pour the soothing fragrant oil of compassion. Yes, be generous through Union Station, become friends indeed, open that door of hope, but let's also think bigger. Let's lift our voices with Christians all over the nation. Let's work like the body of Christ as a unit. Together we can level the playing field in Jesus's name, because when the poor are among us in God's abundant world, Jesus's ministry reminds us God's faithful have unfinished business. Amen. If we put on the screen the, the first slide image, um, let me invite you to participate and give a few instructions. If you're willing to send an email to Congress, then we have uh, things on the tables to do that. And if you're on Zoom, you can also do that because I think we'll have a, a link dropped into the chat, or you can perhaps even scan the, the QR code that will come up in the next slide. We'll get there in a minute. And we have QR codes here in the tables so you can do that. And the advantage of an email is that it'll get there quickly. And, and right now, time is tight for weighing in on, on our local concerns. The time, we have much more time to weigh in on the global, uh, the global Malnutrition and Treatment Act. So if you're going to send an email, let me give you just a, a few suggestions. The first thing you should do is change the subject line of the email, because the QR code will take you to an email that's already pre-written. And that's, think of that as a sample. But if you change the subject line to something of your creation that comes from your heart and your thoughts, that's best. And then the next thing to do, secondly, is to personalize that email up front. You know, write something in that first sentence that makes it clear, you are an individual, you are not a bot. And, and it's really you writing, and, and here's why you're writing. And, and if you're able to reference anything local, if you're able to say that I'm aware that Union Station or, or someone local is serving more meals than ever, that also gets a lot of attention because you're referencing a local reality. So rewrite it as you see fit. And then finally, you may or may not need a nine-digit zip code. So if we go to the next slide, I did this two days ago and it wanted my nine-digit zip code. Bert did this yesterday and it did not ask for his nine-digit zip code. It was fine with five. So there's no guarantee, but if you need the nine-digit zip code, there's a link at the bottom, in the bottom left corner on the screen under to email Congress, and that can help you get your nine-digit zip code if you don't know it, because let's be honest, like who actually knows your nine-digit zip Wow, okay, a few. <laughs> I'm impressed. I sometimes remember mine, but not often. So that's for emails. For letters, the first thing you would do with a letter is make sure that on the letter, 
you write on the page, on their blank page, your return address on that letter. Because envelopes and packages and other things get disposed of. So you want to have your return address on the letter. And never mind the address for Congress. We have these addresses up there in the corner. But really, if we want to get those letters there quickly, I will arrange, with your permission, I would package them together without individual envelopes and send them slash deliver them to local California-based offices of Congress, and that will get there more quickly. For people on Zoom who are not here locally, you probably have to look up your local office of Congress, or you could, again, just use the electronic forms. If you're not called to write a letter or send an email, I'd ask you to spend that time in, in prayer or just reflection, thinking about those who face hunger and those who have greater power to do something about that. So thank you. Let's pray. Let's pray over these letters. Lord, thank you for the opportunities of having so many mediums in which we can communicate with one another. Letters, emails, texts, so many vehicles. But please make sure that as we use these vehicles, that it's your words and your will that are said and realized. We pray for your blessings on these letters and these emails all these messages, that they would go forth to those with elected leadership, with power that comes in this country and government. We pray that you would soften the hearts of those who are not concerned about those who face hunger, that you would help people to set their differences aside and work together. You would lift up addressing hunger and vulnerability among us as a greater priority for our government, for our nation, for our churches, for our communities. Help us to be united in moving forward and please fill these letters with purpose and love. In your name we pray, amen.